Hey everybody, welcome to uh, this next installment of the conversation of our generation. My name is Nick Jamel and I'm going to be talking to you today about some really interesting things. But uh, before I dive into these ideas, I really wanted to talk to you about uh, where you can find me on facebook.com slash conversation of our generation on Twitter at con of our gen. Obviously, I have my blog as well, conversationofourgeneration.com. <clears throat> I'm on Mines and Steemit. Um, I haven't been as good because they're a pain in the butt to log into because uh, they have really long keys that I don't have memorized. So um, I am not as good at getting into those, uh, but I do have those as well. And you can find me at all those places. And right now, I am still looking for people to help me out with blogging uh, on my or putting out blogs for uh, the conversation of our generation. If you want to write up an article, you know, 500 to a thousand words, and figure something out of you know, put out an idea that you've had that you want people to hear and to read and to think about. Um, whether it's a proposal of some sort, I don't know what it is. Um, I'm going to be you know, looking through, so email me, nicholasjamel at gmail.com. My last name is spelled J-A-M as in Mary, E-L-L. Uh, you can email me there. You can hit the contact portion of my blog. Just go there, leave your email so I can contact you back. But just write something up and send it to me, and I can, you know, go put it through. I mean, I'm going to copy-paste. You can call me out on social media if you see much more than just me, like, fixing a typo or something. Um, you know, if I read through it and I catch that, I'll fix it for you. So, um, but that's about all I'll do. Um, I'm just going to read through and make sure that there's no, you know, really profane, hurt, you know, things. I mean, honestly, I'm not that worried about, uh, the ideas being said. I think that if I see something that comes up, I'll put it on there with the disclaimer that says this is not something that I agree with and, you know, write a return blog or something that said, explains why or explains that idea. Um, or, you know, I, I just won't be putting anything pornographic so it's safe and family friendly. Um, and that's about it. So definitely hit me up on that. Uh, you can even direct message me on Twitter or, uh, at con of our gen or, uh, message me on Facebook as well through the page. I think you can get to me that way. Um, but yeah, so definitely hit me up and let me know. Um, and so for today, what I really want to talk about is kind of, the differences between what you see in cultural conservatism versus like a political conservatism and really kind of where I stand in my belief of, you know, my cultural conservatism, where I stand on that. And then also talk about how my, uh, my, I guess, political conservatism has led me to the point where I've kind of gone to the libertarian side and it's actually made me, um, I would say, it, it's changed how I'm conservative and the way I think about things, I would say, as well. And um, kind of talking about how I've come to marry those two ideas together and, you know, allow them to accept each other. And I think the thing that really made me start thinking about this and how it looks in my life is... Uh, so the new Roseanne reboot thing, um, her new show with, I think it's, I haven't actually watched the first episode. I wasn't a big fan of her show when I was a kid. Um, it was always on Nick at Night, and I always would flip to it and it'd be on, and I'd wait till like, Fresh Prince came on, and I'm going to be talking about that here in a second. But um, I always 
enjoyed like Fresh Prince. I like the Cosby Show better. Um, even Full House. I just never watched Roseanne. I don't know why. Um, maybe because the jokes probably went above my head, and some of the other ones were, you know, a little bit more kid friendly, a little bit more goofy. I don't know. It just never caught my attention. But with this reboot, I mean, they it says here on this article that they had eight, and this is from actually Ben Shapiro at the Daily Wire, um, and it's uh, it says that 18.2 million Americans between 18 and 49 watched it, which, by the way, like, I think it ended around the time I was born, so, uh, like, in 1994, 95, 96, somewhere in there, so, for people who are, you know, 18 to 23, you know, like, they definitely, like, they could have not even been born when this show went off the year the first time, and then, really, like, if you're, like, you know, five years old and that, like into the into your mid to late twenties, you really probably don't remember watching this show when it was coming out. Like you will probably watch reruns of it later on, and so you probably had to be thirty or above, I would say, to know like this show the first time around. So the fact that they this is to me actually showing that it's tapping into something that's true in the culture uh, more so than um just like a nostalgia I, i'm sure that there's probably people in that older age range who have a nostalgia or people who you know they grew up watching the reruns of it the same way like if they had a fresh prince reboot i would watch it you know um because i grew up watching the reruns because it actually did i'm pretty sure before i was born uh, i looked it up just to see and so um i think that it does tap into something that's true, and I think that that 18.2 million, it says that it's like a record Tuesday night premiere for ABC since 2006, um, especially with how bad Hollywood's been doing. The fact that this is such a big hit shows um, that really highlighting that blue-collar uh, kind of Midwest family is something that's been missing out of uh, their product assortment, so to say. Um and, and, and so it's a little bit refreshing, you know, I, I saw some of the jokes and I've heard some of the clips. I, like I said, I haven't seen that whole episode and I'm probably going to go back and watch it. So I can, but it's actually seeing the episode is not pertinent to what I'm going to be saying. So except for there's a couple things that I, I, in reading this article, I do want to go back and watch and see how I feel about the way they do it. But, um, or see what I think of it, I guess I should say not how I feel about it. And but there's it, it talks about how she's kind of a fiscal conservative. She voted for Trump basically because he's you know gonna fix the country. He's a businessman, and and that's something that I think that is very true. And I think um, Ben Shapiro in here he talks about how she shows it talks about how she doesn't care about these other issues of um, that she's pro gay marriage, she's pro abortion. You know she only cared about Trump because of fiscal policy, and he kind of says that that's not what conservatives were thinking. And as someone who lives in the Midwest, um, I can tell you that that's what a lot of people around me were thinking. Um, he even says in here that she could have easily, just as easily been a Bernie supporter. And I'm going to tell you right now, almost every Bernie supporter, I mean, not every, I would say 50% of the Bernie supporters that I talked to, uh, voted for Trump in the, in the final, like they, they were kind of soft Bernie supporters. They, they thought he probably would be the best candidate. And then when, but they, were would have voted for her against Hillary, but then when Hillary beat him in the primary, they were so afraid of Hillary that they would have voted for Trump over Hillary because I'm gonna tell you right now that Bernie and Trump are both populists pitching to the same people. They have the same sales pitch, just in different ways a little bit. And and so 
And Trump actually hasn't actually done what a lot of what he said he was going to do that I was worried about him doing with, you know, protectionist policies and, you know, he, he, you know, Bernie's a lot more globalist and, you know, Trump's a lot more uh, patriotic nationalistic, which aren't the same thing. But he does have a good patriotism and his natural nationalism is, I think, dangerous, but sometimes they're not dangerous, but it's a dangerous idea sometimes to make uh, a common part of conservatism because it really doesn't fit with what conservatism is supposed to be about in America, which we're going to get to in a second. Um, but I think that most of the people around me, they really did buy into Trump, not because of the fact that um, <clears throat> he'd, you know, stand up for, stand up against like gay marriage or, you know, abortion, even though we'd like to see him stand up against abortion, I would at least, I don't care about gay marriage. I don't think that's the government's role. I think that the government should get out of marrying, uh, uh, you know, heterosexuals as well. I think that the government shouldn't marry them either. I think it should be a contract that if you're in the Catholic church, you should, you know, probably just the Catholic church would have, I mean, they have a contract, they have a, formula for everything else in marriage and everything else in our lives as Catholics. So why would they not just have a standard contract that's just signed and now you're married and you know what, the state, you have a private contract between two people, the state enforces contract law. That's, you know, that's, that's to me what it should be is just enforcement of a contract. Um, it shouldn't be granting you a marriage and all these special benefits because of it, because, well, anyways, we'll get to that possibly a little bit, a little bit later as well. Talk a little bit more on it, but, but so there's things that really to me aren't an issue but you know what is an issue in uh the heartland of america right now is we're being kind of feeling like we're left behind i think a lot of people around here see that that the culture doesn't revolve or not revolve around the culture doesn't even acknowledge our existence from most of the time uh living in this area and and it just like the way that people live on the coast doesn't even like like we, you wouldn't even like recognize this part of America if you live on the coast and vice versa. Sometimes when I walk into like, I have a family in New York city and, um, who actually, a lot of them live on long Island and are Trump supporters actually. But, um, and they think the same way as us, they're blue collar workers and they, you know, they bust their ass and they, they see Trump and they like, yeah, he's a rude, he's rude, but so am I like, you know, what are you talking? You know, they have like this New York attitude and they're like, I remember, you know, we were sitting in the backseat as kids and this uncle's teaching us how to flip people off behind us, you know, like, that's just, it's, it's just goofy stuff. Um, and, you know, he, he's just kind of that, you know, uncle that's just didn't really care what you thought and would say what he thought and all that. And, you, you know, he's a New Yorker. He's a little rude sometimes, but, you know, to us, at least in Indiana, we would consider, we would be like, oh my gosh, you can't believe you said that. But like in New York, it's like, oh, you know, that's just New York. So... And that's, and that's how, like, I, I realized that, like, Donald Trump, when he talks, 80% of the time, he's just like that. And when he's, if he's going to push a fiscally conservative policy, you know, that's good for me. You know, I, I, I would appreciate that. Um, uh, any Anybody who will go into the political office and roll back regulation, cut taxes, preferably cut spending as well. Okay, not preferably. Needs to cut spending as well because all you're doing is making me have to pay for it in inflation later on in my life or my kids will have to. So that's bad. But so we need the spending cuts to come this year, hopefully. I mean, that, that just needs to happen. Um, but, there's, but there's fiscal policy like that, that 
that are important, and then the unification of the country. That's what, to me, is more important, is to unify America around the opportunity that this is supposed to present to people, right? Because the the patriotism of America is not about being white or black or man or woman or Christian or Jew or whatever it is. It's about you come here to make the most of yourself and have every, you have every opportunity because you are a free person. And that's kind of the thing that I think that you tap into when you – if you tap into that, then you tap into the Midwest because that's what we are. We, I mean like I know my family, my grandparents all – I mean I mean they all grew up pretty much – I mean like d dirt poor for the most part. I mean like they all grew up poor. And my parents both grew up better. Um, I still, I mean, I would say that they probably started off poor and then like throughout their lives, you know, their parents kind of rose into the middle class when they were, when my, when my both my parents were kind of going into high school. And then when my parents moved out, they were financially able because they had college degrees. They were able to get better jobs than, you know, their parents were starting off. They were able to you know, like when I was born, we were, you know, a comfortable middle class. I didn't, you know, have everything that I wanted all the time. You know, I wasn't super rich by any means, but like I never, you know, I don't remember my parents ever worried about worrying about money. Maybe they hid it from me sometimes, but I never saw that, you know, I was able to get a Catholic education. So they paid for private school and, and that kind of opportunity is what you tap into in the heartland of America. That's what we see all the time. I know, you know, that that's what we care about. We don't actually, none of us in, in this area care about gay marriage, you know, feminism, transgenderism. I mean, like, we, I mean, we, we, I could just give two shits less about that stuff. And, and also I know I say, yeah. So I, I mean, like it just, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter to me. So uh, and, you know, I think it has – there's implications that you have to look at in the culture, and you have to kind of talk about these things at a deeper level. But when it comes to my politics, like, I just don't think government should even be touching on these things, so I don't even think about those in relation to government. I think about these in relation to my community and to my family, and when it comes to my family, like, I would try to talk anybody in my family out of getting an abortion because I think it's bad for you. I think it's a wrong the wrong thing to do, and I would sit there and say I will support anyone in my family. Um to help them not do that. You know, I will help you with your kid. I will help you, you know, with anything, you know, to save you from the guilt and the, you know, the pain that comes along with doing that as a parent, as a, you know, as a mother having to go through that, you know, or going through that, not having to, but going through that after, you know, transgenderism, I would, I think that actually is, um, uh, based on the fact that it was in the DSM and it really kind of got taken out for of the DSM for political reasons that it is some sort of mental issue. I would ask that you get, I would help someone in my family who's a teenager get treatment for it where they actually try to get to the heart of the issue. And if they can't, if they say that, you know, this is what I am after five years of treatment and they're an adult, you know, I, I'd accept them for that, you know, but I'm, I'm not going to go around parading and bragging about the fact that my kid is, you know, cross-dressing or transgender, claiming he's a girl when he's a boy. I would never do that. I would tell him he's wrong, and I would correct that on him. But I don't think – and I think that anybody who's giving their kid hormone blockers is – that I think that's child abuse to make that decision for your kid. Like, you know, like 
if you, I mean, just, just picture just like if I said I'm going to sterilize my kid, you'd say, no, that's not okay, but I'm going to sterilize my kid because he thinks the opposite gender. Oh, well, that's okay. Like, that doesn't compute. You know, I, I think that's morally wrong. You know, so I have these beliefs on this, but I don't think that I have the right to tell someone in California what they can believe on this. Like, they think they can for us <laughs> all the time. But so I think these things that Ben talks about on here, you have to have these conversations with your family, with your, you know, uh, with your kids when you become a parent, with your parents as you're growing up and trying to form your beliefs. I think you have to have these conversations. And hopefully you're tied to, in my case, you know, a good faith community that raises you in a way that you kind of have a little bit of moral clarity on this. But I don't think it is something that we need to dictate to other people. I think you can stand out there and and uh, push forward your ideas on it. And I think Ben does a good job of that. I really, I'm not criticizing him. I, th I just disagree with the importance of this to people who I know in Indianapolis. And I know a lot of, you know, Christian conservatives in Indianapolis. I grew up in the Catholic community. I, I mean, I know half the Catholics in Indianapolis, it feels like. So, um, it, it, to me, it just, I don't see that connection that I think he's trying to draw here because the reason why the culture is important is not because of those issues. It's because we want people to believe in them in America and in the opportunity because we've, I, I just think everyone around me has seen the opportunity from their grandparents to the their parents to like us and like Indianapolis right now is an up and coming booming city but for up until 20 years ago I mean really 20 30 years ago it was called Naptown because it was a dead city it was boring nothing ever it was stagnant there was no growth there wasn't new stuff happening here I mean like it you know we you get a little bit of business there's buildings going up and there's new businesses here and there but there wasn't like booms like right now like there's areas that are being completely revitalized by just the fact that young professionals can't find affordable housing. So like we're like, like they, they're going into like areas that were kind of like sketchy and making them nice, <laughs> like fixing up houses and buying up old decrepit foreclosed houses and like moving the barrier of where you would maybe want to live. You know, it's, it's expanding and making some neighborhoods that were just forgotten nice again. And it's because there's a, a new influx of vitality in Indianapolis that I'm seeing all around me. And it's amazing. And I think that that's the thing that you see in Indianapolis that the coast, I think, have just had. So people who have lived on in New York and lived in California their whole lives, like it's always just been a vibrant city. If you're 60 years old, like you've never seen a sleepy city in most of those places. Like Los Angeles hasn't been quiet since the movie industry started, like. New York has never been quiet. I mean, it was, you know, so Baltimore, all Boston, all those places have always been bustling, crazy places. So you really haven't seen this American ideal coming to fruition, I don't think. You haven't seen that rise happen throughout your generation. And, you know, there's people who have probably done it, but, like, Indianapolis as a city has just risen out of this, you know? I mean, so, and I see it, like, Nashville is a nice city, and it's really looking better and better. Louisville, you know, there's a lot of areas like cities in the Midwest that right now are really, if the coasts were paying attention, you would see, you know, it's being built by innovation and everything that's being spurred by the fact that people can't afford the coast anymore and it's cheaper and they're 
coming here and building these amazing businesses and there's opportunity abounding here and we see that happening right before our very eyes and so we know that this american promise of opportunity is here and i think that's what you know roseanne really touches into or touches on the that blue collar family and a lot of us know these people like that i know a lot of families like what roseanne's family is supposed to be like and and so you know i think it taps into something that's actually very true it you know i think that also the blue collar family it kind of shows that it's really it isn't top of mind whether or not your kid is you know primed and proper and blah 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 because you're you're trying to make the next paycheck man like that's something that I don't think that the coastal elites really think about is the reality of what that actually means. Um, I was listening to Jason Stapleton's show earlier today, and he was talking about how it's sad to him to watch Frozen. And I kind of agree because it's like I, I know so many people who've actually lived that reality of that family that um, it's not uh, terribly amusing to watch because – you're seeing this and you can see like, oh, I know so-and-so who's gone through that. I know so-and-so who's had to deal with that issue with, you know, you have decent families who are busting their ass and, you know, kids are, you know, they're, the kids aren't able to, you know, grow into the adults that they probably should, the potential that they had because the parent isn't able to parent because they're just trying to get food on the table. You see that. I know I've seen these kinds of families and these kinds of things happen uh, from people who are actually, you know, lower middle class, working class kind of families. So that's a reality here that, you know, you don't have the time to deal with your daughter smoking dope like Ben kind of criticizes that in here. It's like you don't have the time to really fix that problem properly because, it, you know, you have to work Sundays to be able to provide food. So you, maybe you're not going to church all the time. You know, I, I haven't gone to church very much since I've started working because I work five days a week. My school is on two days and they have to be weekdays. So I have to work on Sundays in order to be a full-time employee and to get the foothold in into the world that I – and to propel myself into the you know future that I want. I've had to do that. I've, it's a sacrifice that I, I'm making now, so hopefully I'm well enough off that you know I can – you know I don't know, that I don't have to miss games and I can take my kids to church. That's my thought. You know, I – I, t I went to church. I, I learned all the good things that I needed to learn. And, and you know, I'll say, too, it didn't help that I probably wasn't the best into my faith and my beliefs at the time. But I kind of went away from it. And I, and, I, and I finally came back to my beliefs a lot more in Christianity, but especially my, in my kind of reconciling my problems that I have with the institution of Catholicism. And, and just decided that those things aren't going to keep me away from what I believe to be right and what I believe about the Bible. And, and now, you know, I, I'm working my butt off so that, you know, in the next couple of years, I can take Sundays off, you know, especially once I graduate school this semester, I can start maybe getting into jobs that like, I don't have to work Sundays and I can go to church again and build that uh, thing for myself that I need as a young person so that when I become a parent and I can have that for my kids. Um, but I'm, I plan on doing everything now so that I can raise my kids in the way that I want to with Catholic Christian values and send them to Catholic schools because I, you know, so I, I do that. I believe in these things that Ben talks about. I, I agree with him on the, like, I actually agree with him on all these issues as far as like what's right and wrong for you, for me as an individual, for most individuals, I think that he's right. But, and I think that 
it, it, it just shows something that there is a disconnect between the coast and what's really happening here in um, here in the middle America. And I also want to talk about a couple other family shows real fast, too. Um, this episode might go a little bit longer. I'm looking at the time on it. But, you know, I, I think this is kind of an important thing to me um, to really show, lay out all these beliefs and bring it back all, fully around. So The Fresh Prince, I think, is a great one um, as well. That was one that I watched growing up. And I think that what it tapped into as well is, you know, like Roseanne really tapped into the strife of the middle class or not middle class, working class you know, family in the Midwest, you know, that's, that's, you know, something that I can see around me and I can identify, I, even if I didn't have that upbringing exactly, I knew people who did, you know, I kind of went, you know, I, I saw that. And then you have, uh, the Fresh Prince, I think really gave an interesting look at, you know, you have, um, you know, the, um, the family, you know, living in Bel Air, that's, established and they're you know they have you know, the dad has a great job he's you know they have a big house that you know they live well and it shows number one i think what that it, i think that was something that was that is true that you know black people can't achieve it showed that black people in america had the opportunity to achieve you know it was something that in the 90s like that's you know i mean there was successful black people before the civil rights movement there were but up until the civil rights movement, there were not a lot for sure. And, um, and so like through the seventies, eighties and nineties, you kind of see this ascension of, uh, of, you know, black people into middle and upper middle class a lot more often. And it's, you know, there's still, but I think you see, you see Will struggling as he was kind of left behind, you know, he didn't know his dad and he lived in, you know, the streets of Philly that, um, you kind of see that those two different experiences of, you know, Carlton is Will's age and he's having, you know, the traditional American middle, upper middle class experience. You know, he wears his goofy little sweaters and he goes to the club and like plays tennis, you know, and all that stuff. And like, he like, he's an upper, upper, not even upper middle, like upper class really person. Like he's just your general, like he's, he kind of like acts like, you know, Will makes fun for acting white, you know, quote unquote, because, he kind of just assimilated into that culture um, that, you know, really white people had made in that area for the upper class. And Will has that different experience that I think is something so many, uh, especially since Lyndon P. Johnson and the, the new, you know, the Great Society, that so many uh, incentive, government, incentive, government programs incentivize you know, single motherhood and all these things that what's happened is, is you see a lot of Will, Will Smith's in that where, you know, they do grow up in a father's home. They, they do have a mom who's doing their best and like making all the decisions that she needs to, to, you know, help her son stay off the streets. And so she literally ships him all the way out of Philadelphia to ensure that that happens. And, and I think that you see him struggle with, I think something that's actually really honest of he's struggling with uh, how to maintain his identity as really kind of like as a honest black man, you know, like that maintain what he kind of considers to be his black culture to while he's trying to also leave behind the bad things that kind of are associated with that. Right. Um, and so 
I think one of the best scenes ever in that is when, you know, I forget exactly what it was going on, but Will was kind of talking about how he didn't have his dad and, and it was apparently ad-libbed is what I've heard recently that, you know, when he's talking to, uh, uh, uncle Phil and, you know, about how his dad left him and how he appreciates him and stuff. And, and he, he, you know, he tears up and you can see how honest it is, um, and I think that that is something that uh, I, I think if you watch that and you don't get a feel for how much pain that, you know, the kids who do grow up fatherless have, I, th- I think that it, you know, you, you, you kind of just aren't, you know, I mean, you just have to be a sociopath to not feel what, you know, moved by that. And, you know, at the same time, you, you can even watch like, like, I don't know, also watch the Cosby show at the same time. I think you kind of see a good, wholesome family out of that. And that's why. I think the Bill Cosby's issues were so um, rough is that you saw he uh, was such a family man and such a, you know, in the show that what he did in his personal life really counteracted all the good that he did on that, it felt like. Um, But both those shows tap into experiences that are honest and genuine, I think, for a black community, for the black community, just like Roseanne does so for um uh for a lower class or middle class working class you know family and i think that those things they deal with the issues and it's and it shows how honestly messy family interactions are and how messy life really is and that you know you're not going to win every battle but you hope that your kid turns out to be a good adult and you know you, you may not beat the fact that they get into drugs and you know, hopefully you can help them get through that or get over any addictions, or maybe they do find out, you know, after college that, you know, smoking weed all the time is not going to allow them to get a good job, you know, and they get their button gear because they get motivated on their own. And because you've taught them the right values all along and they just had to realize, oh, my parents were right. They they taught me all these lessons and those things are actually true. (laughs) And I can tell you that I've gone through some of the things where my parents have taught me values and I don't believe in them. And I find out later on that they're true and that they're right. And I think that, and and I think that anytime that I kind of go against traditional values, it's actually a huge growth on my part because I, it takes a lot for me to kind of break that because I think I'm a conservative person in the way I believe. And so for me to take on something new, I actually really have to evaluate it and reconcile it with other parts of what I believe. And so I'm slow to change a lot of times, um, but I can change. <laughs> I just have to really, and there's times where, you know, I'm not as slow to change. I mean, if you introduce me to a new, you know, I'm not like so set in stone, like I like, you know, like an old man where I eat the same, you know, meal at the same place all the time, or I only drink this beer or whatever it is, you know, like, no, I'm not like set in stone on, th- but like my beliefs and my principles, I really am really set in stone and so because I think that that's how you have to be and if and if you change those and if you work those out in a different way I think you have to be honest with yourself about why you're doing it and and but anyway so I think that Fresh Prince and Roseanne and a lot of the early like honestly a lot of the shows in the 90s that had like families were honestly pretty honest about you know I think Full House was 
um, a little bit more kid-friendly, so it wasn't quite as honest on some of the things, but I think it did hit on some things that were really real and really honest and genuine. Um, but I think that, like, w I think that the Fresh Prince and Roseanne were kind of meant for a little bit older audience, you know? And, and so I think that they all three, all those shows, or a lot of those shows, really tap into something, and I don't think that we have that anymore. Like, I like Modern Family a lot, but I really think that it's not as honest. I think it is good in a lot of ways, um, and that it teaches a lot of good, you know, values. It has, and it's got, it's funny. I enjoy it a lot. Like, I, I watch the show. I've watched, you know, every season, uh, so I'm not, like, knocking the show, but I think that the characters are almost like caricatures of, you know, real life people. And, you know, like Al Bundy is, you know, the grumpy old grandpa who has, I mean, like who has a hot, you know, trophy wife, you know, he made it for himself and he has a hot trophy wife now. And, and his, you know, his ex-wife was kind of the crazy ex-wife and Phil is the goofy fumbling dad who, you know, like, that's, like, apparently the dad in everything now, um, you know, he's, like, he's, he's literally, like, Randy Marsh on South Park, and, you know, the, Claire's the, you know, your mom, your regular, like, oh my god, my husband's such an idiot mom, like, kind of thing, like, she, she's the person who has to put up with him and, like, organize everything, and she's super high-strung, you know, all the time, super wired and stressed out, and then the daughters, you know, you have a nerd, you have a dumb, like, kind of goof-off son, and then Haley's a popular pretty girl. You have, you know, Mitchell and Cam are, honestly, I think, uh, I think those are probably the one that's not really a caricature of, they're pretty honest, you know, I think what you would picture as just a normal, you know, what, what you would imagine, like, I mean, not imagine, what you would think of as, like, you know, an average, you know, couple, homosexual couple, but, like, just an average couple in general, like, I think that they actually work together more, like, a man and woman than, like, I think they're actually closer to what a man and woman's relationship would be like than Claire and Phil, I actually think that, or, or Al Bundy and, um, what's her name, Gloria, um, so, I, I think that they're, like, they actually, it's just weird to me that that's probably one of the most honest relationships. Not that it's most honest. I think that they, I think that they definitely do that on purpose. That they kind of make these other two caricatures and put them against probably the the most honest relationship is. I think that they're trying. They've kind of said um, in the past that they are trying to normalize homosexual relationships, which is fine. I don't care. I mean, I think it's I think it's a good thing to show because I think honestly that there's a potential for to see something really new and interesting come up in our culture out of, um, like, accepting homosexual relationships and seeing what they can be for our culture, because I think you might see something new come out of that, um, but I, I, I think we'll have to see, because it's obviously a very new thing, <laughs> so we'll see what happens with it, but I think that seeing their relationship is actually really interesting, um, dynamic and the fact that they kind of go through the adoption process and you know and I think all the the major things that 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 they go through as a family are pretty honest and pretty real and like show the messiness of family but I think it's it's kind of exacerbated to make for comedic purposes right um 
like that's why it's almost I think that like Cameron and Mitchell are actually um, because Cameron is almost like a caricature of you know a like a really I don't know feminine gay guy whereas Mitchell's kind of not uh, as uh, but he but like it's because like okay so let me get through this so when it comes to their relationship Mitchell kind of acts like you know a man would in a traditional relationship whereas Cameron kind of is a little bit more hysterical a little bit more empathetic and so he's a lot more feminine in the relationship but when it comes to their lives leading up to that you know Cameron was your traditional high school boy big you know football player kind of guy and kind of manly man you know whereas and he's stronger he's a football coach and all that outside of it and Mitchell was you know an ice skater and you know a lot more effeminate and I think that that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition that you get out of it but in their relationship between each other you can definitely see that Cameron is an much more of a mother and Mitchell is much more of a father and that's just how I mean they are and I think that if you get those aspects right I mean people I think no matter what as long as you have a mother and a father you can have you can raise a good kid and so I think that they kind of show that in the show pretty well um but I think that outside of their relationship their you know their masculine and feminine roles are actually kind of different so it's interesting I, I think that that show though is a caricature of uh, at least the a lot of the characters are and like because I just don't know any dad like Phil I don't know I mean maybe maybe there are I mean like, like, there's goofy dads don't get me wrong like but they're not just all the time like a total kid like he is and I don't know a lot of moms like Claire I mean I know a lot of moms who work really hard and you know and all that but they're not as you know I don't know, as mean and catty as she kind of is in the show sometimes. And, you know, obviously uh, Al Bundy and Gloria and Manny is definitely a caricature of, like, picking up a trophy wife. And, like, Manny's, Manny is just, like, not even, like, a person like anyone knows at all. <laughs> like a little Colombian kid who immigrated to the United States who now is involved in, like, all sorts of crazy upper class, like, taste and all that like that's not something that anyone knows at all but I guess what my point is in all this is that Roseanne really tapped into something that's authentic and you know really it's it's really something that deals with something that's real to a lot of people on a microcosmic level and you know you may not agree with everything but you understand um the trials and tribulations that come with being a family in that situation and saying you know I haven't had that problem so I wouldn't I don't know if I would handle it like that in that way but I can understand that whereas like you know modern family kind of feels almost like an adult version of full house which where it's like things kind of just get wrapped up real neatly and um you know and it just fits in the episode and all these stories happen to tie in together into this one single lesson and you know and, and it's like well that's not really how real life works it isn't that clean and neat and fits into 30 minutes perfectly and you know, and, and it's because Full House is meant for children. That's why it's like that. I mean, it, it was meant to be a family thing, but it's something that, like, children can grasp uh, grasp all the values that they're trying to teach and, you know, and, and all the, you know, they can have a resolution that a child can understand in 30 minutes. 
And so it is simplified in a little bit of a caricature, you know, in that regard. That's why Full House is that way. But, you know, Modern Family, I guess it's kind of meant to be a family show, but a lot of the humor is definitely much more um, adult humor. And I, I mean, I think family or Full House had some that kind of went over your head as a kid, but, you know, as an adult, you might catch it, but it wasn't as big of an issue. And, and anyway, so the reason why I'm talking about all this is because I really wanted to lay out the ideas that I kind of see in the family and in the, in that microcosm that, you know, how I look at life as I'm trying to build a life for myself, what I'm, what I really think is the best route for me and what I would think is the best route for my family and what I would argue for my friends, you know, what I would tell them. But at the same time, these are not things that I, uh, <clears throat> come to as values that I feel a government should instill in people. And, and I think that's something that is another lesson people can take away from this. And that's why I kind of talk about, um, conservative libertarianism. I've written a post on it and it has kind of two things to it. So it's, it's really approaching the idea of libertarianism from, which is a political philosophy, which is a political, I guess, yeah, philosophy and um, and conservatism is also another political philosophy, right? And in America, this is really the only place where you can combine conservatism and libertarianism because we were built to be a country with a small government. So to maintain and having a small government and get back to the first principles of why we have a small government, that is a conservative belief, really. And that's why I think people are so topsy-turvy on what conservatism you know why people don't understand what conservatism is here in america versus other countries and um so uh i think that that's that's really where it comes down to is so that's one thing is okay so that's one thing is that uh basically conservatism is preserving it's really more like preservatism you know you're preserving the constitution the the founding the building blocks that's why you know the middle america that is more conservative but we're conserving is the american dream that idea that you can come here and make yourself into whatever you want that you can you know you know four years ago you had to be you know working a nine to five or a factory job or and just busting your butt to make it and provide food for the table and be able to put your kids into a better school and provide them with college and then those kids went on to go to college and we're able to provide their kids with all sorts of crazy things and really a lot more often be involved and, you know, being the little league coach and this and that and all a lot more things and really give their, be a better, maybe better parent to their kid in the sense of, um, building them up. And then, you know, which is true. I mean, the baby boomers really had to bust their butts to provide for Gen X and Gen X was actually, you know, kind of almost too, uh, able to be involved in their, the millennials' lives because it babied them, kind of. But that was made possible by all the hard work that, you know, the baby boomers and the uh, uh, generation before them, you know, did. You know, that that 1940s to 1960s, that, you know, time of kind of economic boom and lots of revolution and technology provided for the American dream to be had for so many people after that. And, and that's something that's amazing. And the ideas of liberty and tolerance and, um, and, you know, free markets and what all that does for us, 
that's things that I'm trying to conserve. I mean, I, I want liberty and freedom. That's what I'm trying to preserve because I want to be able to live my life the way I see fit because I understand in Oh, and I'm trying to preserve the institution of what the individual is, right? That's something that we've built up in Western civilization for 2,000 years. I mean, that's what Christianity is, the rising of the individual out of Judaism is what it's basically is. I mean, so it's the same as America rising, you know, bringing the individual even more so out of the British form of government. It's just like that. Those are both the same story being told in different ways and so i think those are some of the things that i'm passionate about preserving and that's why i think you need to have a limited government i mean if government's going to have a place i see it as you know the organizer of the states and kind of arbitrator of the states for the federal government and then the state governments are basically you know able to organize you know, the people and basic things, you know, like in times of need to of self-defense, you know, to have militias or things in place that they can maybe fund. And, you know, and then when we need to provide for national defense, they can come together and do that, I guess. And the federal government's there to organize that effort. And then other than that, to have courts for a redress of grievances. And that's really it. I mean, I really don't think you need, uh, I think that private you know, businesses or the private sector can solve almost all the other problems that government tries to solve. I think that you just need to, at least for the time being, if you're, you know, you might need somebody to have the ability to enforce, uh, you know, uh, like a court decision, let's say, if I sue you because, you know, or if I say you stole something from me and, you know, I prove it in a court of law, well, who's going to make sure that you give it back to me if you're bigger and badder and stronger, right? So you need someone to say, no, you got to give it back to them or this will happen, right? If if my, I'm a big brother and I take my little brother's thing and he can't beat me up about it, well, you know, I need dad to come in and say, if you don't give it back to him, I'm going to kick your ass and, you know, you give it back to him, right? And so that's kind of, you need something like that. I think for the time being, um, as much as I'm principally opposed to it, I think that it's a necessary evil at this point until technology allows us to beat it. Um, yeah, I think that technology will eventually take us past that. But that's one thing. And then to you know, for pe to keep violent people from doing violent things, um, you know, you need to have someone who is a neutral party that um, makes sure that you don't have. The Hatfields and McCoys or, you know, the kind of like gang uh, retaliation. That's something that's, I think, even more dangerous than having. I think that's more dangerous than having a government that takes a murderer off the streets and puts him in prison. I, I think that's a better option as of now. I think we will come up with better options than that because it used to be mob mentality. Like, you know, you go, you think the guy's guilty and you go take him even like, you know, so and you you know, you, you do justice with a rope and a tree and that's it, you know, or, um, or you have kind of like with the Hatfields and McCoys, like retribution between clans and stuff like that. Those things I think are much more dangerous and produce much more of a cycle of violence than a rule of law that, you know, so I, I think that's, I think rule of law instead of rule of man is definitely a better institution to preserve until we can find something better. And I think that like, when I say all these things, I think that these are the best ways to 
look at the role of government as of now and say, hey, how can we fix this so we don't require um, a monopoly on force that is funded through theft, <laughs> which is what we have now, which is the government that is funded through taxation, right? So I think that's not ideal, and that's, but I think that the first step is to pare that down and to show people all the possibilities of what private sector charities and, you know, innovation and just pure economic growth can do because 150 years ago, the richest people in the world didn't have electric lights and now homeless people have cell phones. So, I mean, the quality of life for, you know, even the poorest in America today is better than a, like middle class, upper middle class people were probably 150 years ago, except for the people who are like, so like who are like the people who are homeless because they're in between jobs and they can't, you know, they didn't have connections and, you know, something kind of fell through. Those people are better off, you know, people who are mentally ill or drug addicted. I mean, they're, their personal choices, you know, at least not the mentally ill, but the people who are drug addicted and, you know, living on the streets, you know, their personal choices brought them there probably. Um, you know, people who are mentally ill, their quality of life may not be that's more due to the mental illness than their state of finances, really. But the point is, is that the poorest in America live better than upper middle class did probably 150 years ago. Maybe not as good as the upper class, but even then, probably still, as far as the conveniences actually are much better than they were 150 years ago for the poorest among us. So I think those are things that are worth preserving and getting the government out of it so that you can see what can happen. And so I'm a libertarian with government because I don't want to tell other people how to live their lives. You know, other than me, my kids, I will tell how to live my lives. You know, I will suggest things to people who you know, I'm friends with who, my family and say, hey, I don't think that's a good decision for you to make. You know, I know. But but I'm saying that as an individual to individual, I know who this person is. And so I can make a recommendation on them how to for them how to live their life because I know who they are and the decisions they made in the past and the decisions that, you know, where they want to be in life. I don't know random person in California or New York or even Montana, Alabama, Texas. I don't care. You know, I don't know what they want from life or who they are or any of those things. So why can't I tell I can't tell them what to do with their life? that's what government does on so many levels and that's where i think we need to start fighting back first before we you know before i tell people like you know roads need to be privatized and etc cetera, etc cetera, i'm like i i think that but i'd rather just you know pare back all these sorts of rules on how to live our lives and the regulations coming down from the federal government that are being written by bureaucracy you know like I think you need to pare down a lot of the size of government first before you can even start to show people because people forget right now, I think, what liberty is. And that's something that, you know, I think is a big deal. So, like, if you pare down the federal government, then state governments can allow themselves to be as free or as authoritarian as they want. I think that's the key is our states are supposed to be experiments of liberty to find the best forms and the best kind of combinations to pare down government and to fund certain initiatives, you know, like New Hampshire has, uh, um, state, I think like state run, uh, liquor stores, I think they compete, but the state run liquor stores, I think compete with regular liquor stores. So they, they don't bar people from being in it. And, and, the, and it actually gives government, it's a, literally it's a profit incentive for government to provide an actual service. You know, as long as government doesn't put barriers and restrictions on its competitors there, like, you know, which is obviously a huge danger, you know, when you're talking about governments generally, 
but New Hampshire's isn't too bad. Um, in fact, it's probably one of the most libertarian governments, um, if not the most libertarian government. And so I think that, you know, having a profit incentive there to raise funds, you know, sort of like a lottery system, I don't mind that, you know, I think that that's a good way to fund the necessary things that people or the things that people find necessary in government. Um, so that's, I think, important to recognize is the distinction between, you know, I'm conservative in my life, but if people want to live a, you know, fast and free lifestyle, man, go for it. That's, if that's what you want to do and that's where you find fulfillment, fine. Like for me, I, I, I think I find more fulfillment in settling down and finding my niche and, you know, being there and doing like, that's just kind of how I am, you know, like being in here with my family. I enjoy that. I find, you know, that to be a lot more fun than going out and, you know, doing crazy things. It doesn't intrigue me as much. And so I think that that's something that uh, a lot of Christian conservatives also feel, especially around me, that, you know, we live our lives that way, but we don't really require it of other people. And I think that they've kind of gotten this idea, especially through, um, I think that Christian conservatives were used in large part during the uh, early progressive era as the perfect vehicle because they stood for um, a sense of like imposing your virtue on other people and the progressive era simply wanted to latch on to whichever power, progressivism in general, wants to latch on to whichever power structure is going to give it the most power and authority. That's why right now you're seeing, you know, it latch on to the intersectionality and all these things because we, over the last 50 years, the philosophies that have been built up around, you know, feminism and, um, you know, race relations and all these things have kind of almost made it to where it's the political correct culture can kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of take power and authority without really a just cause in a lot of times. So, you know, you see it with just all sorts of things that happen. And I think that that's, um, I think it's a little dangerous the way the progressivism kind of latches and it doesn't really seem to have an ideology other than growing power of the government. And, but I think it, it's, I think it's an, I think it's obvious that it has done that because it's gone from the Christian temperance union to really, I mean, to like now they, you know, Hollywood, the progressivists in Hollywood are saying we make movies to make Christians mad. You know, Jimmy Kimmel said it or whoever, I think Jimmy Kimmel was the one. Yeah. He said, you know, we make this, that movie about the, you know, the gay guys, uh, falling in love just to make Mike Pence mad. And it's like, you know, I don't think Mike Pence watched that movie or cares first of all, but, um, second of all, it's like, that's just a huge flop in a hundred, you know, hundred years, really, that it's gone from Christians imposing their, you know, imposing their values and their virtues on, you know, basically on drunks and minorities and immigrants to like in 2018, where it's like drunks, minorities and gays imposing their values on Christians. Like it literally has flip-flopped in the last hundred years. And it's because it's not about the ideology that's being pushed. It is about government power and authority growing. 
And that's the thing I think you have to really, um, that's what you have to fight against because I don't, uh, there's a, one of Ben Armani, he, one of the shirts that his co-host, uh, Christian Reyes makes is libertarians, you know, like scheming to, I, I forget exactly what it is, but it's basically like planning to take over the world and leave you alone. <laughs> and it's like, you know, all, I, all most libertarians want to do is get into office and not do anything. Like that's like their ticket in is like, I am going to get in and not spend money and block bills that I think are stupid and block all sorts of initiatives that I think that government shouldn't be doing. And everyone, all libertarians are like, yeah, we shouldn't be doing stuff. Exactly. Like that's what I'm passionate about. You know, let you know, and so when it comes to government, at least, um, and and I think that that's just really true, and I think that that's the exact opposite of what progressivism is, where it's literally just latching on to anything that I can do to increase the power, size, scope, and authority of the government, and that is the two competing ideologies. I think <clears throat> there are Christians who, like, I think there's kind of four classes of there's kind of Christian, like conservatives, Christian kind of authoritarians, the people who still kind of want, you know, I think, I think that, you know, it's, it's a little bit not authoritarian, but like they still want to use the government to represent their values instead of the government to be an arbiter between people and let you represent your values. I think there's people like that still in the, you know, religious side that still want gay marriage to be illegal and, you know, but they don't hate gay people generally. I mean, there's some that do still. I mean, Westboro Baptist Church is still out there. But I think most people, even who I know that are like, I don't want gay marriage to be a thing, they still would like, if their son was gay, would not like disown him or even treat him less for it, you know, and they're, or they're morally opposed to birth control, but like, they're not going to hate someone who uses birth control. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people like that. And I think that's because they're Christian Especially if you know the person, you know, you're a lot more empathetic and they're really a lot more tolerant of the people around them. I mean, you know, Jesus pretty much teaches you like you, you know, hate the sin or love the sin or hate the sin. And I think that that's how a lot of the Christians I know are is, you know, I don't like what you're doing, but I still love, you know, I still like you as a person. You're still my friend, my son, my cousin, my whatever it is. And so whether or not I disagree with you, it doesn't matter because I still, you know, I still love you as a person. And so that's one thing I think that's also key. But there's still people who want the government to reflect their values instead of that. So there's that those two parts of Christianity or like like the kind of conservative side. And then you have the people who are much more on the liberal side where it's I want to like, you know, Hollywood where it's like I want to use government and the kind of like Obama era or the Obama side where it's like I want to use government to impose my liberal ideology on, you know, on the middle America. And then there's people who are, you know, um, I don't know who they support on the left right now, but almost like, you know, I think that I think it's also kind of hard to find people who don't grow the size and scope of government on the left because if you're fiscally liberal, you're going to grow the government. But people who are kind of um, almost like you're like really like you're kind of Christian socialist kind of person, or, or but it's not necessarily Christian, but like you're kind of like good-hearted, like young, like I want to help people kind of left left liberal person, and at the same time like I'm into like 
super spirituality and chakras and stuff like that. Like, you know, they're just like, I just want to, you know, kind of maybe make sure that more people are getting taken care of in a way. And, you know, and I can respect that. I think that, you know, the, I, I think that those are people kind of in the middle there. And then you have people who just want to be, who are on the left and just want to be left alone. You know, gay people who just like, I just want to be able to marry who I want. I don't care what all this stuff is. And, you know, it's like, all right, you know, I, I'm with you. I want you to be able to do that so that I can, you know, go to the church that I want to go to. And that, so that he can, you know, build the business that he wants to. Like, I think all these liberties that we think about, like your you know, who you marry, who, you know, what gender you want to be or whatever. It's like, um, I think that those things are, I, I think that they're, I don't know, they're all kind of the same sort of freedom as what we have to realize is, does the government have the right to stop you from doing any of those things, from building a, the business you want to build? Does the government have the right to stop you from, you know, using your body to work a 12-hour job in a factory or... At the same time, using it to, you know, be a prostitute. I don't think it has the right to tell you to do not do either of those because it's, you know, it's your life. And I don't think that any way that you earn a living that's not harming other people, you know, it's like I don't think the government has a right to tell you not to. I think your parents have a right to say, I don't want this for you or your friends have a right to tell you, I don't think that's good for you or, you know, or your church community has a right to kind of. Stand, help come around you and ensure that you don't have to become a prostitute to fund your life or to live you know like I think that that's a good thing you know if your church can help you out and boost you up and get you into the right places so that you can do something else but but I don't think the government has a right to tell you not to do it and I think that's the the tolerance that people have to really um realize is that for you to be able to do what you want to do you have to let people who you despise and whose behaviors you hate happen as long as they're because as long as they're not stepping on you know toes then they're allowed to be in that space you know that's kind of how I look at it is, is if if you're really not interfering with the people you know not if as long as you have a right up until the point your rights interfere with other people's rights so that's that's the thing I think that people have to realize and so that's kind of how I come at this. And that's why when I tell you guys that I'm a conservative, um, I don't want you to picture me as like a, you know, a big, you know, a big government. I want to go after drugs and homos kind of thing, like an old, like, like, you know, McCarthy, like I have in this folder, you know, like, no, that's not who I am. I'm conservative because that's my temperament as a person. I'm slow to make decisions. I'm, you know, if, if you come to me with an idea, like I'm like, okay, yeah, let me think about it. <laughs> and I come back and, you know, cause I'm just, I'm not, I, I stick to the, you know, conservatism is preserving the status quo and in government, that's your constitution and your, your founding principles. And, and in your life, that's your, that's what it is. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not the kind of person who can drop everything and backpack Europe. No, like I'm the kind of person who's like, I want to, if I want to be able to do that, I'm going to work to build a business that I can do it on the road in Europe and make sure that I have, you know, while backpacking and I can just work for my laptop. Like I, I would do that, but I would have to make sure that I, you know, can build a business to that point or something. I wouldn't just say like, I'm just going to go, you know, leave everything behind and try it and, you know, 
then just try to, you know, pick up odd jobs and live in hostels and stuff like that. Like, I think it's awesome that people do that. And I think that that's such a cool experience, but I just can't, you know, I'd rather save up and take a vacation somewhere and go experience that culture and then come back and work my job and, you know, be with my family and, you know, find fulfillment in that. And then go have those experiences. Cause I don't find the, you know, the fulfillment that some of those people get in adventure. I, I find it um, interesting and I find that it expands me in a new way and it changes my point of view on different places and peoples and, you know, and cultures. But I don't think it's something that I just want to do all the time. I can't just drop it and leave, drop what I have and leave for that. And, you know, so that's kind of how I am is I'm, I, you know, I would rather, um, I guess, yeah, if I don't like my house, I'm going to remodel the things to make my house, make sure I like my house, you know, whereas that other person is going to be like, if I don't like my house, I'm going to sell this house and go buy a new house. And that's just not how I think. So I think that's kind of, and it's, I think really liberal to conservative is about temperaments, but I think that you can be both liberal and conservative, um, and still have that libertarian leaning where, you know, because really liberal in actuality, if you want to look at what the word comes from, is not about actually political, um, it's not a political word. When Aristotle talks about it in ethics, the word originates from, you know, being almost like a, not generous in the form of charity, but being, as we would think of like liberal with your money, kind of like, you know, you're the kind of guy who, you know, it, it's like really the opposite of uh, what's I can't even think of the word now. I just had it in my head a second. Miserly. He kind of says you you want you know basically Aristotle's saying in ethics that there's this extreme and there's this extreme, and in the middle of those is where you want to be. You want to be among on the mean. So liberal really was the opposite end of miserly. You know, it's the guy who that's who you go. He's the one you know having people over all the time, and you know he he spends you know his extra cash on throwing a party or honest friends, you know, that's, that's being liberal. That's really what it is. That's where it comes from. And so liberals now are just people generally who want to be liberal with the government's money instead of their own. And so at least that's what I see it as. I mean, that, I mean, that's, I mean, and I think you'd be hard to disagree with me on that political stance, um, that liberal left, that the left or most people who consider themselves liberals are the ones who advocate for government programs and things like that. Um, whereas conservatives aren't necessarily cold-hearted. They, you know, they just say, I think, you know, I, my perspective as a conservative is, is I'm going to take care of me, myself first, and then I'm going to, you know, so that I can have a family, take care of my family. And then once I can take care of my family, then I'll, you know, help in the church and in the community. And then if I can do that really comfortably and I've, you know, and I've gotten really successful, then how I'll do charity work outside of the community and outreach and, you know, all this other stuff, you know, but you build from the base up instead of, you know, kind of the other way around, like, you know, having this idea, this big plan of how we're going to help all these people and then, you know, start with, I want to help all these people and then, you know, try to figure out how to do it. Instead, you say, I'm going to help me and then I'm going to help this person and then this person and then as I can help more and more people, I'll take that on. And I think that's the approach that I take to it. So I think, I think I've said, I think a lot, this podcast, <laughs> um, 
but it's a different idea. So, and I think it's also because it, I'm saying that because it's a little bit more of a personal, um, personal podcast for me. I'm talking about really my beliefs and how I live my life a lot more than, um, really just talking about, uh, you know, a political idea or walking through history. I'm kind of talking about my take on this philosophy and this is kind of how I built my idea of conservative libertarianism. And so the other part of conservative libertarianism that I want to talk about real fast before I finish up is I also take that conservative approach to paring back the government. So I don't want to lose the institutions that, you know, that government has taken over maybe, um, from time to time or like, you don't want to, you know, so I guess here's how I would say is before you have UPS and FedEx and all that, you wouldn't want to just get rid of the post office without any solution besides the post office. But now that we have FedEx and UPS that are like way more efficient, they're profitable companies that, you know, well, do we really need the post office or can we scale it back a lot? You know, do, I mean, do we need a 2200 page spending bill? Like, let's just start with that. Like how many of those things do we not need to spend money on? Like, just start with stupid stuff like, you know, doubling budgets of random agencies that no one knows exist. Let's stop. Let's stop that first. <laughs> That's a really simple thing to stop and just say, like, why? Like, everyone can agree. Like, what the hell does this thing do? What is this? Why are we funding that? Right. I think, you know, before you even like touch like controversial things like, you know, why can't we just start with just, you know, this we're paying probably. So, I mean, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, like, if you read Rand Paul's tweet storm and my own, you know, like the things in the omnibus bill, you know that there's all sorts of crazy stuff that both sides agree we shouldn't be funding. <laughs> and so let's start there. But, you know, my thing is I will take any ins that you can give me in smaller government. And I think I, you know, I think I know a lot of people who are on the libertarian, voluntarist, anarchist scale that would you know, say that, but then when you ask them to, like, do this compromise, you know, say, hey, you know, they're all like, oh, well, taxation is still theft, and it's like, well, but we had, you know, a cut in taxes, and they actually cut spending to match that, and we balanced the budget, yeah, but taxation is still theft, it's like, yeah, but we have less theft happening, can't you just, like, you know, say, I'm happy about that, and show, and say, you know, but look at and look at all this, all these economic benefits and all these other things, and preach about those good things coming from it. You know, and maybe next time we can get that extra inch or that mile. You know, so, but that's my thing is when it comes to the government as well, you can't just tear down the house to remodel your bathroom, right? You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You have to, in my opinion, uh pare it down and make it work with your time um and you know make it serve the same purposes and it might, it'll look different it'll change and it'll you know but it has to protect because the government that we have is built to protect life liberty and property so if we're going to have a government that's what it should be doing and that's what we should focus it on and say these are the things that it should be working on let's pare back everything else without losing that and let's pare back everything else without, um, you know, if you cut Medicare and Medicaid, well, we have to have a private sector option. Just like if you're going to get rid of the post office, you need to have options in the private sector. You can't just 
undercut, you know, a billion, you know, half a, you know, well, not a billion, you know, a quarter of a billion people who are counting on Social Security right now. You know, if you're going to get rid of Social Security, you know what? My grandma and, you know, her generation, you know, a lot of the people in there didn't plan for that. You know, my grandma kind of counts on it probably, you know, and and she's paid into it her whole life. You know, it's called an entitlement because you feel entitled when it comes around for you to take it because you've been paying towards it. So why can't we just phase out 16-year-olds? Start there. 16-year-olds don't get it. They don't pay it. Their employers don't pay it for them. Start there. You know, people who are 30 and younger can get bought out for a discounted rate or something. You know, okay. You know, people who are 40 and under can get bought out for, a, you know, a lower discounted rate and we can just nip it in the bud. And it's no longer an unfunded liability. It kind of comes due and, you know, maybe we take on the debt and we have some spending cuts and we don't lower taxes yet to pay off those, you know, pay off those deficits. Okay, like these are some plans that we can start doing that, you know, work in the right direction without undermining the entire institution all at once so that people are just, you know, left, you know, completely in the dark. And then you just make people mad at libertarianism because if you just, you know, if you pull the sheet off the table, everything just goes everywhere unless you're a magician. And guess what? When it comes to slashing, you know, fixing Social Security, there's no there's no magic about that. It has to be practical. It has to have a real solution. And so that's what I also want to come back around at the end of this and say, for those of you who have actual solutions to problems, write me a blog post and I will put it on my blog if you think you have an idea. I mean, I'm going to be probably crafting something this week and talking about, you know, the issue that I think we have of a lack of rite of passage. I think Vin Armani and uh, Jack Spierko have talked about it and I think that a lot of what we have is men not knowing how to be men because there's a difference in when you become a man versus when you become a woman and I think that that's something that I think I have an idea for, you know, just to put out there. And, you know, in a time too, when people have to take responsibility for being an adult, when do we make that, you know, when do you get the full responsibility and full freedoms of being an adult in our society? You know, that's one thing I have an idea. I'm going to put it out there, you know, and, you know, my omnibus bill, I, I said, here's a, a constitutional amendment that I want that would fix this, that would just stop that issue. You know, it's not going to fix the entire government, but it would, you know, let, give us transparency and accountability so now we know what our people are actually voting on because i don't know what the heck you know was in that bill that was voted up or down and you know what my senator my congressman every you know i'm represented by a republican senator a democrat senator and uh and a democratic congressman who really my democratic congressman is way left my democratic senator is pretty moderately left probably he you know has to say things that are way more left to go along with the party to get funding, and my Republican senator is pretty establishment Republican, and all three of those guys can tell me good things that they stood up for and why they voted on the bill and why the, their opponent in the next race is going to be wrong for voting on the bill because it's so big, right? So these are things that we can kind of address with and put out ideas and solutions, and that's what the conversation of our generation is for, is saying it's going to be a range of opinions, I hope, if people can kind of latch on and see what's going on here of thoughts and philosophies and ideas and but hopefully all those things kind of pare down into potential solutions for that you know our generation can solve because we're all 20 something year olds in my generation you know 20 to 30 well actually probably yeah i'm millennial so i'm really the bottom of it but then my brother's generation coming up and we can have these conversations that you know in 100 years from now or you know 50 years from now 
people will be, you know, talking about in history books, right? I mean, we talk about the Civil Rights Act. People had to solve those issues. You had young people marching in the streets and doing things. You had old people and, you know, middle-aged people and young kids, everything, working on this idea and having that debate. Well, we have debates in our – but we're, there's nothing actually being done about these things, really. And that's what I want this to be is finding solutions for those things. So find me on Twitter, at Conovargin. Uh, hit me up on Facebook as well, Conversation of Our Generation there. Um, Minds or Steam It, go there as well and find me. Uh, I mean, you can find me on my blog, obviously, Conversation of Our Generation. Oh, and I want to put this in there. I do have a Patreon page now where you can go and support the show so that I can uh, scale this up, maybe reach more people, and I will be adding some more new exclusive stuff. I'm writing a book right now. I'm going to be putting out sneak peeks as I finish parts of that and get it edited and looking good. Um, so that'll be up there. I will be putting out probably more exclusive videos and maybe doing some more chats so that as I grow the following, people can go on there. So if you want to help me out and help grow this, write me a blog and I'll put it on my blog and go to my Patreon page and support me there. Or you can support me via crypto on, uh, <clears throat> on my uh, blog, uh, on the support site, uh, on the support page. Uh, so, but just if you do that, hit me up in the contact and let me know so I can thank you properly and, you know, we can figure out a cool, I don't know, reward. Maybe I can get you into the sneak peeks on the Patreon page and stuff like that. So, definitely keep an eye out. There's more coming, um, especially if I can get people writing to the blog and keeping up on that part, if I can just make it to where I'm just editing the blog, I think it'll be a lot better for me to be able to focus on the podcast and the other parts that I really want to do to build this into more. So definitely, definitely, definitely get involved with me in the, you know, join the conversation with our generation and let's get the dialogue going in. I just want to thank you guys again for listening and uh, until next time, have a good week.